1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the Word of God. Let's pray and ask His help. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank you for the means that you have ordained for your word to be propagated in the earth. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves so weak. As the apostle would would later ask, who is sufficient for these things? To declare it or to hear it. to, To take it upon our mouths or to even consider it deeply within us. Lord, we... We very often tremble at the thought and we, many times we cower at the threshold of your word. We don't want to walk through the doorway of what it actually means and what it might mean to us because of the fear that we might be exposed in our sin. But Lord, we know that this is your good work. This is your kindness to us that you would not leave us where we are. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that, that over the next several minutes, that perhaps this might be a time where you help us to see where we have been wrong, to show us the right way, that we might love your word and love your ways all the more. Oh, Lord, glorify yourself in the midst of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this second chapter of Paul's epistle to the church in Corinth, we are making our descent down from the doxological mountain peak of verses 30 and 31 of chapter 1. And as we make our way down, we have to follow the same path that we use to climb up, which requires us to retrace our steps a little bit, specifically the steps that we took earlier in chapter 1. The argument, what Paul's doing, the, the, the theme has not changed even though we've moved into a new chapter. Now you'll remember this whole first section of the epistle began by addressing the problem of division in the church. Look at verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Division or discord or disunity is the primary issue at hand. That is the target that the apostle is shooting at. That problem in the church. But you'll also remember that the subject over which they had divided was, to use 
the title of Martin Lloyd-Jones' book. The, the subject was preaching and preachers. That's what had divided them. Preaching and preachers. We see in verse 12 of chapter 1. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. The division, the disunity, is the primary issue. The cause of the division was preaching and preachers. And as we noted last Lord's Day, the Corinthians had adopted something like a Christianized version of the so-called wisdom of their society. They had brought the way that the world thinks into the church. They had, but they had Christianized it. So they were still elevating themselves over one another. They were just using Christian things to do it with. Preaching and preachers was now the step stool that one could stand on and, on and, and lift their heads above their, their brothers or their sisters. They had divided into factions. Each group selecting the preacher that best represented their tastes. So some might say, I'm of Paul. You know, he was the first one that came. He's, he's our real leader. He's the one that got this thing started. Somebody else might say, well, I'm of Apollos. You know, he was a very eloquent speaker. I mean, nobody could outspeak Apollos. And somebody else might say, well, I am of Peter because of his, more than likely because of his attention to the, the Jewish converts and his background in Judaism. They, maybe he presented the, the message a little more in line with their, uh, their, their way of thinking. And others were saying, I am of Christ, which is, is uh, spoken of poorly here. The idea was probably that there were people who were saying, well, you can have all your human preachers, you can follow men if you want, but we'll follow Christ. We'll follow Christ. Not the men that He appointed to speak in His name and gave His word and His authority. We'll just follow Christ. And there was divisions over those particular preachers. And so using the wisdom given Him by God and writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul addresses this very serious problem by using the same approach that he uses in every one of his epistles. Paul always does the exact same thing if you pay attention. He does it in different ways. There's wisdom here. But he's not doing anything different. He brings them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is always the answer. Go back. What was the gospel you believed? Who is the one you follow? That's what he's doing here. So... He's continuing his argument. Now, you might remember a while back we laid out the trajectory of his argument because Paul's arguments are very often sort of hard to trace. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, he, he pointed them to the message that he preached, the message of the cross. You see, the world, and this is what he was telling them, the world that you came out of considers the message of the cross foolishness. The world thinks that worshiping the crucified carpenter from Nazareth is the, the height of folly. It's absolutely ridiculous to them. But that's the only message that brings salvation. It is that gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So he, would, he was able to point back and, and remind them of that gospel message. What did you hear? Was there any worldly wisdom in that? They would have had to say no. Worldly wisdom was absent in that message. It's actually completely foolish to the world. Then in, in verses 26 through 31, where we've spent a while, he's been addressing the Corinthians themselves as they were the recipients of that message. 
because they knew that for the most part, they did not fit into the societal uh, mold of magnificence or impressiveness. They didn't come out of the, the high ranks of society. So why would they then adopt the philosophy of those types of thinkers now that they're in the church? That's what he, what he was getting at there in verses 26 to 31. He draws their attention to this. And he proves that the conventions of worldly wisdom did not apply in their salvation. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. That's what the world seeks. That's what the world promotes. Not many of you had any of that, and yet you're still believers. So clearly, worldly wisdom was absent in, in your conversion and in your salvation and in your walk in the Christian life. Well, that brings us to chapter 2, where Paul is now returning full circle to the main subject of the division in the church, which was preaching and preachers. The main, that, that's, the, that's why they had divided, preaching and preachers. Now, he's going to hit on it here, and he'll, he'll take another little outroad at some point. He'll come back to the concept of preaching and preachers. All of this, this, this whole uh, portion of the epistle doesn't conclude until chapter 4. But he keeps coming back and, and again to this subject because this is where they had divided, preaching and preachers. But he's pressing home the same point. So to state that point succinctly, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul now uses his own ministry among the Corinthians as an illustration of the point that divisions over preachers is foolish. Dividing over your preachers, that's contrary to the fundamental principles of the Christian religion. That's what he's going to show them. And he does this by pointing out five things in five verses. His unpopular method, his unappealing message, his unsightly mannerisms, his unconventional ministry, and his ultimate goal. Now, yesterday I had to make the difficult decision to divide this material up into two messages so that I could digest it and so that it would might maybe be more digestible for all of us. And so we're only going to get to the first two points today. Paul's unpopular method and Paul's unappealing message. Paul's unpopular method and Paul's unappealing message. So number one, Paul draws attention to his unpopular method. He's not ashamed to call their attention to his own ministry, and to remind them that the way that he went about his work among them was not according to the popular appetites of the Greek culture. Notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Here we have... Paul sets up himself as exhibit A. He says, and I, talking about himself. Now remember again, the factions had divided up into at least four groups. Those of Paul, those of Apollos, those of Cephas or Peter, and those of Christ. And Paul could have used any one of those other groups to make this point if he wanted to, but you can imagine how awkward it had been if he would have said, now you remember how Peter was when he preached to you, right? I mean... And, and the people who were for Peter would have said, no, what, what, what was it? Come on, Paul, what was it? 
Well, that those who were against Peter would have said, yeah, we know. That's why we are of Apollo. So we are of Paul. It wouldn't have been very wise to point to somebody else's ministry and point out whatever failures there might have been. So he points to himself. He chooses himself as the example. And I, now in verse 6, he's going to transition. Yet among the mature, we. He's going to bring back the collective thought of the ministry of the word. But here he's talking about himself. Why did he do this? At the very least, it keeps Paul from being charged with trying to criticize or disparage the other names mentioned, which would only seem to feed the conflict. Well, of course you would bring up Peter, because we don't like you, we like Peter. But he also uses himself, because his own ministry is the best illustration of the point that he has in mind because of a particular time frame that he's considering, or he wants them to consider. Notice he says, And I... When I came to you, when I came to you, he has a particular chronological reference, a time stamp. Paul's taking them back once again to their entrance into the saving graces of God. When he says, when I came to you, he's referring to his original mission to the city of Corinth, recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, we read, verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And then verse 11, and he stayed there a year and six months, 18 months, teaching the Word of God among them. That was his ministry. He went to Corinth, stayed for 18 months. So Paul was the original herald of the gospel to them. He was their first preacher. He was their introduction to the gospel. More than likely, many of them first heard the name Jesus from the lips of Paul. And it was during that 18 months that we read in Acts chapter 8, 18 verse 8, Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So he came to them. He preached to them. They heard him preach. They listened to the preaching. They believed his message. They believed in the one that he had set forth for them. And they were baptized. So Paul takes them back to his initial visit. When I came to you and his ministry among them, he takes them back to the time when they heard him and they believed, when they were converted, they were baptized, brought into the church. Now, the implication obviously is that they were saved. By the grace of God, the free, infinite, matchless grace of God, these former Pagans were brought into the good graces of God, reconciled to God through the act of preaching the gospel. Because the Spirit used that means to bring people to Himself. Through Paul's preaching, they had been saved. And it's of that time frame, when I came to you, back to verse 1 again, it's of that time frame that he says, and I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's job was always to proclaim the testimony of God. Always. Everywhere he went. This, this, this concept of proclaiming the testimony of God is synonymous with the phraseology that he uses in chapter 1, verse 17. 
He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. To proclaim the testimony of God in our vernacular is essentially the same as preaching the gospel. Now the phrase that we have here in chapter 2, the testimony of God, is exactly the same as a a phrase we've already read in chapter 1 verse 6 except for one word. Look at chapter 1 verse 6. He says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That is, when the gospel was proclaimed and confirmed through your faith, you were converted. Here we have, again, the exact same phrase with the change of one word, the testimony of God. So the testimony of Christ in chapter 1 was the, the, the gospel of Christ, the testimony about Christ or concerning Christ. Here in chapter 2, it's the testimony of God, the testimony concerning God. Or more specifically, we would say, the testimony of what God has done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners, which we call the gospel. To proclaim the testimony of God was to preach the gospel. So what he's saying is, if we wanted to alter the wording, I did not come preaching the gospel. And then he goes on to explain how he did not preach. He preached the gospel, and this is in fact the job of every Preacher. It is to be a gospel herald, a gospel preacher, or a minister of the new covenant. It's another word for a gospel preacher. His job is to proclaim the testimony of God, to bear witness to what God has done in and through His Son Jesus Christ to save sinners. And anything less than that is not Christian preaching. It's not the ministry of the new covenant. We might like other things, but other things are not the ministration of the new covenant, the delivery of the good news, the gospel, the testimony of Christ. This is always Paul's job. This is the job of every Christian preacher. But he says that he did not come. He's going to give us a negative. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he's addressing his methodology, but he's using negatives. I I didn't do some things. Why would he do that? Because of what was popular in their culture. What he's he's essentially saying is, I didn't do what everybody else wanted me to do. The word lofty here, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, that word lofty means superior or of high status or importance. It doesn't mean long. Long. I didn't come using long words, big words. It doesn't mean uh, words that might be exclusively Christian in nature like justification, sanctification, propitiation. Thing. That's not what the word means. He's, he's not saying, I didn't come using words that required more than two syllables. The word here has, has the picture of, of, of a high status in people's minds. That people would hear those words and say, wow, what words. And the word wisdom is the same word we've seen repeatedly in chapter 1. But here, because of the way he uses it, we know that he's now talking again about worldly wisdom, the wisdom of his culture. Paul says, I didn't preach this way. I didn't preach using that method. Listen to R.L. Dabney as he describes this phrase, lofty speech or wisdom. The reason this is important is because we don't live in the Greco-Roman culture. Even, even as I have, have tried to learn what this looked like, to me it's still so foreign that I, I just don't understand it. I just say, I guess that's how they were. 
Listen to Dabney. Quote, The spurious and unworthy art, which is here rejected, was that of the Greek sophists, a system of mere tricks of logic and diction, prompted by vanity and falsehood, and misguided by a depraved taste. Now we hear that, obviously this is a Christian writer describing it, but we hear that and we say, why was that attractive? The irony is, the Greeks loved this. This was the form of entertainment in their society. Listen to Albert Martin. He says, The Corinthians prided themselves on their schools of rhetoric. They had their cultured canons and standards of oratory by which they measured the entertainment value of a public speaker. As our culture has cultivated tastes in the visual techniques of cinema, the Corinthians had cultivated tastes in the verbal techniques of oratory. So there's, there's something we might can make a connection with. Oratory was the Corinthian form of entertainment as movies are the American form of entertainment. Alright, so here's something we can kind of recognize, especially the, the, the younger ones among us can recognize this, and you see this in your children often if you ever, if you ever put them in front of a screen. Especially when, you, when you're, if you're watching a trailer or, or clips or something, you see clips from something and you see movies or parts of movies, whatever it might be, if, you're, if you have high taste, it's film. If you're, if you're observing film, you'll come across an old movie. Maybe it was filmed and produced in the 60s and 70s. And it just looks different. It looks different. The acting is different. The, the, the soundtrack and the background is different. And it, it's just hard to even watch a trailer and think, why would anybody want to watch this? Just because of the way it looks, you know, you go back to black and white and the children are just like, turn it off. What's, what's wrong? What, something has happened. Why? Because there are, we, we have cultivated these tastes for what we will consider entertainment. So there was a time when you might see in Technicolor and you would say, I'm getting my money's worth. I mean, this thing's going to be in color like I see with my eyes. But now we look at it and if it's not whatever the latest is, digitally, whatever, whatever, we're like, well, I can't even watch this. Give me my money back. What is this trash? Because we've cultivated these tastes for what we consider entertainment. You feel like you're getting a lesser product. And so with many entertainments of that sort, especially if you're not cultured in the study of film. You don't care if the storyline is nothing but pure fantasy as long as it looks and sounds cool. It entertains my eyes, entertains my ears. It's entertainment. Well, you know, it's not real. Eh, that doesn't matter. Well, you know, it's actually just really, really ridiculous. The whole thing, you know, people point out all these these faults in movie plot lines. It, none of it makes any sense. They didn't even do a good job at writing it. Well, you don't care. It looked cool. It sounded cool because you have adopted these cultured standards by which we measure entertainment value. But the value of entertainment, if it entertains the eyes, the ears, or it satisfies the senses of the flesh, 
And usually if we can go gospel coalition and find some Christian themes in it, or perhaps the person who made it, you know, acted like a Christian once or twice, it's, it's now a Christian movie, right? But that, that's how we, we, we judge what is entertaining by these standards that we have adopted, and, and, and you know that it's true. To entertain means to hold in a certain frame of mind. That's what the word originally meant. To catch the mind and hold it there. And that's what we want, something that catches our mind. But a slow plot line or, or a plot line, uh, a, a, a production that just goes for what seems like five minutes from one person's facial expression to the other and back again and back again. You see a bead of sweat and back again. You know, you hear the Western music and back again. And you're thinking, what are we doing? Like, we're, can we not get on with But they're trying to give a story, but we don't like that. We want it to move along. Our minds start drifting, you know. That's entertainment. We have this just like the Corinthians. What is strange for us is for the Corinthians, public speeches were their entertainment. They didn't have television. They didn't have movies. They didn't have cameras. It was public speeches, public oration. And there were cultured canons. There were standards that, they were, that were used to measure the entertainment value of the speech. Can I listen to this? Or does this sound like some guy from back in the you know, 200s B.C.? Who's the latest speaker? And so Paul is saying here, essentially to the Corinthians, he, he's saying, you check me on this. When I came to you, I came with a message. I came with a public message. I came heralding, preaching. But you know good and well that I did not come trying to satisfy your lust for entertainment. You know that. I didn't come trying to meet the standards of what was regarded as the highest quality of entertainment. He's saying I didn't come completely digitally remastered with Dolby digital surround sound. That's what he's saying. I did not do what your culture called entertain or entertainment. Now all of that is important. Because a lot of people today will take Paul's words here when he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And they'll take that to mean that Paul basically came and preached like an utter buffoon before them. That he, that he preached in ignorance, practically illiterate, purposefully untrained, unprepared, that he just got up and shot from the hip at every message. That, that pretty much if you could have heard Paul, if any objective listener would have tried to listen to Paul preach they would have not been able to make heads or tails of what he was saying. It was, just, it was just words strung together, but somehow the Spirit used it, and that's not true. People assume that, but that's not the case. If that were the case, then he contradicted his own ministry when he told Timothy and all other pastors in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's a, there's a work involved. He didn't say, just show up, just see what happens. When Paul compared the Christian ministry to a soldier in the army, or an athlete in a competition, or a farmer working his field, he certainly had no intention of, the, of conveying the message that the Christian ministry was to be one of half-witted, corner-cutting ease. Do farmers do that? You just show up out in the field and, and maybe there's a tool there. Maybe there are rows. Maybe there are seeds in the ground. I don't know. We'll just see. We'll just pray. Lord, show up. when we No, that's not how farming works. That's not how athletics work. That's not how 
the military works. And anybody who pays any attention to Paul's epistles know that that's not the way he ministered. Some would take Paul's words here, along with statements from Christ, to justify such a ministry. Our Lord said in Matthew 10, 19, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Well, see, right there it is. Christ and, and Paul, they both agree. Don't think about it. Don't plan. Just show up and start talking in the Spirit. Well, that text has nothing to do with the regular ministry of the gospel among the saints at all. Not even close. But that's the way people typically think of this. And again, I think it's because we have such a hard time grasping the fact that the Corinthians love to just sit and hear someone talk. That's the context in which he's speaking. Some take Paul's statements here to mean that we should avoid diligent and rigorous study habits. That we should avoid learning and using theological terms and ideas because that puts the message out of the reach of the common person. But that's not what he's saying. Again, to quote Albert Martin, to paraphrase Paul, I do not subject myself to your culturally concocted canons of oratorical technique. In other words, I didn't follow the rules of your entertainment industry. What did this mean? That This meant Paul's method was not popular. It wasn't popular. Not that there weren't large groups of people who heard it and believed. We don't know how many people were in the church at Corinth, but popular as in the populace did not give their approval to his method. When he came to Corinth, he did not ask about the latest fads in oratory. He didn't ask, hey, who's all the rage this month? I need to go hear him so I can figure out how to, how to meet the culture. He didn't ask who was topping the charts in orations. And yet, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Corinthians would have had to affirm that what he's saying is true. As they heard this epistle read in their assembly, they would have had to said, He's right. Now that we think about it, he didn't entertain us at all. He just proclaimed the gospel of God's salvation in Christ. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. He tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He stayed 18 months teaching the Word of God among us. And that was it. There was no fluff. There were no frills. There was no entertainment. As a matter of fact, some of them would probably have to have said, as a matter of fact, I remember the first days and weeks and maybe the first several months of his preaching, I was really aggravated. I mean, it really upset me. I didn't want to hear it. I thought it was foolish. It was so ignorant. And I, I said, I'll just come back tomorrow and hear this ignorance again. What are you doing tomorrow? Well, I'm going to go back and hear this fool again. And they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And then one day they went home and they said, I believe every word he's saying. But it wasn't entertaining. They would have been forced to affirm that this kind of ministry was what had been used by God to bring them to himself. The popular conventions of Greco-Roman oratory played no part in their Salvation, again, worldly, what he's saying is, when I came to you, worldly wisdom was absent. These are Paul's unpopular methods. Number two, we have Paul's unappealing message. Paul's unappealing message. Not only was his methodology contrary to the cravings of the society, but Paul's message was the very height of foolishness to them. As we've seen before, his message did not appeal to their carnal lusts. He says in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and 
Him crucified. Three very important words. You see, a lot of people try to make Jesus attractive by drawing attention only to those more savory, more easily digestible aspects of His life and His ministry. He was kind. Who doesn't like someone who's kind? He went about doing good. Who doesn't like a philanthropist? He loved his enemies. Well, who doesn't appreciate that? He was a good teacher, a simple teacher. He used very base illustrations from the world around him and everybody could understand who doesn't like that. Now, all of these things about Christ are true, wonderfully true, astonishingly true about Him. But to preach Christ and Him crucified, that was to draw a line in the sand that many people were not willing to cross. And still today, this is the line they will not cross. Because this is to preach that, that kind, do-gooding, loving, simple teacher was hated by his kinsmen according to the flesh so much that they crucified him. To preach Christ and him crucified is to imply that such a life of cross-bearing and suffering is expected of every person who follows that teacher. To preach Christ and Him crucified is to demand face down, lips in the dirt, submission to the King who was hanged naked on a Roman cross. That's what people don't like. Paul says, For I decided... And that phrase means to make a conscious decision between options. It is to evaluate or to pass judgment. In other words, he consciously decided, I will not follow societal conventions. I won't do it. We might all even imagine that he did survey the community. What's popular? Okay, wad that up, throw it in the trash. Now I know what I'm not doing. He consciously decided. And he decided what? To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now this is another tricky phrase. Let's consider first what it does not mean when He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's not saying that He just showed up every day for 18 months and walked them through the narrative of the man Jesus carrying His cross to Golgotha and being hanged on a cross and dying and the soldier piercing His side to validate His death and the, the curtain closed on that scene. He just did that every day. For, that's not what it's saying. He's not saying that he didn't address matters of daily living. He's not saying he never opened up the law of God among them. He's not saying that he never addressed issues in the church or the family or labor outside of the church and the home in the world. He's not saying, I, I, I never touched any of those subjects. Y'all know me now. I didn't meddle in anybody's business. I just told you about the man who was crucified every day for 18 months and left. That's, that's not what he's saying. We know that he had a very broad, very practical, uh, relevant ministry that touched every part of life. What, what Paul's saying here is essentially the same thing that he said in chapter 1, verses 22 and to 24. There he said, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, he's saying, he's referring back to that product that the society wanted. Society wanted a product. 
I chose not to give them that product. I did not give them that. I didn't give them what they desired. He said, I preached the gospel of God, the testimony of Christ, as the bedrock of everything else. Because for them, this concept of wisdom, worldly wisdom, was the bedrock of everything else. He said, I I didn't know any of that. I knew one bedrock, one foundation. Worldly wisdom was absent in his message. And we've already considered the foolishness of such a message to the world. Paul would have arrived and for 18 months would have explained the following as the bedrock for for everything that exists, for life in the world, for morality, for families, for husbands and wives, for labor. He would would have explained to them that all men, he would have said, you Corinthians, with your idolatry, you are guilty of high treason against the God of heaven and earth who made you, who takes care of you, who gives you breath, everything that you have. Look around you, Corinthians. Everything that you have that you glory in, God gave you everything that you have and you have sinned against Him. Now they might have responded and said, you're saying everybody is guilty? Yes. Well, then, we, then surely we're fine. If everybody's guilty, the problem can't be all that bad. We said, no, that, that just means the problem is all the more worse. Because the problem is not just that a few here or there have made some bad decisions or, or chose to do things wrongly. The problem is that at your very nature, you are a, a, an indictment against yourself in the court of God. Your nature is criminal against God. The universality of sin did, does not lighten the burden. It makes the burden go deeper. But in response to that sin against God... God the Son came into the world and took on flesh as a man. And He lived a perfect life in the place of sinners, perfect, absolutely perfect according to all of the demands of God's law. No sin from the moment He was conceived to the moment He breathed His last. Every action was an act of obedience. Why? I I guess that made Him really glorious. No, He was already glorious. He's God. Why did He do that, Paul? Well, He done that because, again, you are criminals against God. God, your life is not that way. And then He bore the guilt of our sin to the cross. Christ and Him crucified. Why do you you got to include that part? Because if there is no crucifixion, the obedience does not reach its fulfillment, its fullness, and there's no atonement for sins. Sins have to be punished. So on the cross, he received the due penalty of God's eternal justice. Corinthians, you have sinned. God is just. He must punish your sins. But you know what he did? He sent his son. And he punished him instead. He punished him in your place so that you can go free. And then he was raised from the dead in glory. He ascended into the heavens in power and majesty. That same one. The crucified Galilean carpenter went up into heaven where He sits now as the King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling over everything, ordering all of the affairs of history for His glory to gather in His people from among the nations. And anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Him will be saved. He's that powerful that He will save anyone who comes to Him. And by God's Spirit, we're united to the very Son of God so that we get the Son of God and having Him, we have eternal salvation. Now, the world of fallen men find all of that absolutely ridiculous. That's silly to them. 
You mean to tell me nobody is good enough to save themselves and yet nobody's bad enough that they can't be saved? They just trust in this person, this one? Where, where is he? Well, he's in heaven. So we can't even talk to him. We can't see him. You're just going to tell us. Yeah, that's it. You just trust in him. You're going to tell us that the incarnate Son of God hanged on a cross, then raised from the dead, went up into heaven, and life is there. Eternal life is there in Him. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's silly. I, I can't follow that. I can't go along with that message. The believers hear that and they say, what a message. That's the most glorious thing I've ever heard. Is there any better news in the world? Now, the Corinthians, the people that he's writing to, they were there when he first came. They were there as he preached this message. They believed the message. They turned from their sin to Christ. And they would have been able to affirm that for 18 months, as he taught them, as he discipled them and trained them, that he rooted everything in that message. It all comes back to that. So Paul's not saying, I only ever said one thing. No, he's saying, the bedrock of everything I said was this crucified Messiah. That righteousness and sanctification and redemption are all found in one person. Reconciliation with God. Purity in all of life before God. Hope of eternal life with God. All of that flows to us because of the cross of Christ. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the fountain of all godliness and virtue. And so when it came to issues like divisions in the church, he says, is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? He roots it in the crucifixion. When he addressed sexual sin, he says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Your bodies were bought by the blood of Christ. You're not your own. When he addresses some of them as slaves, he says the same thing. Some are slaves, some are free. Oh, you're free? Well, you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Christ bought you with His blood. You're a slave to Him. When he addressed Christian liberty, he said, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. He's back to the cross every single time. He roots everything in Christ and Him crucified. And this was Paul's method. Preach the crucified Messiah. Preach that worship and adoration and praise are due to the crucified God-man. Preach repentance and faith toward this Messiah. And root all practical godliness in the work of the crucified Savior. And so while all of the culture is looking for a way to get ahead, they're looking for a way to advance, Paul's telling men, no, you have to come low. We want to get in the front of the line. You've got to get to the back of the line. We want to run free of, of all restraints. No, there's your cross. Pick it up. Get to the back of the line. Carry it. Follow the pattern of the crucified God. That's the message that he preached. Now that doesn't appeal to the carnal flesh of, of Corinthian elites or, or American elites. This was not the way up in their minds, but that's all Paul knew. He said, I didn't touch any of that other stuff. I gave you one message, one bedrock. Paul's philosophy of ministry could be summed up in the words of Gardiner Spring. He says, the pulpit is powerless where the cross of Christ is not magnified. So what did he do? He magnified the cross. He drew everything back to the cross and therefore, it was unappealing to their culture. He said, come follow the crucified king. Come take up your own cross and follow him. You know what? Someday you can be glorified with him, provided you suffer with him in this life. 
So we have Paul's unpopular method and Paul's unappealing message. Now from these first two points, we're reminded of something that's very important for us today. And that is this. God has chosen preaching as the method by which His church is to be established and built up in the world and His truth propagated. God has chosen preaching as the method by which His church is to be established and built up and His truth propagated in the world. Again, he pointed them to the time when he first came. Paul enters this new city of Corinth, a place where the gospel had not been preached, where the name of Christ was not yet known. And he began to reason with them in the synagogue every Sabbath. He was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God. And as we see here, as we read, he was proclaiming the testimony of God. In verse 4, He came with speech and a message. Why? Well, he wasn't trying to entertain. He's already said that I purposefully did not entertain. He wasn't trying to appeal to the carnal senses of men. He just said, I didn't do that. That's not why I came. He avoided all of that. And yet, he still comes with this weird, unpopular method and and unpopular, unappealing message. Why? Why would this man do this? It's because he was convinced that this was the means that God had ordained to build up His church in the world. Now, why does the church need to be built up and established in the world? Well, because the church is the house of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And to understand this and to get into Paul's mind, we have to understand the importance of truth. All truth is God's truth, we say. Everything that is true is ultimately true because God is. All truth finds its ultimate source in God, who is truth in Himself. Similarly, we find in Scripture that God is a God of light, a God of revelation. These these themes all go together. Christ the Son said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And He's also the true light which came into the world. John says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as He was the very revelation of God, truth, light, revelation, all central to who God is. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Truth, light, revelation, the the manifestation of God in the world. All knowledge, all understanding, all revelation of reality comes from God, rooted in who He is, and ought to return back to praise and worship to God for who He is. The proclamation of the truth of who God is, the display of His infinite glory, that's the goal of God. That's what God is doing. He's he's declaring who He is. He's light. He's revelation. He's putting out the truth of Himself. And that comes to an even more precise focus in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, to proclaim the testimony of God is the same as to proclaim the testimony of Christ. It's to preach the gospel of God in Christ. And to do that, to proclaim that message, is to join in the preeminent work of God Himself. Because in the gospel of Christ, we find the fullest and clearest expression of who God is. God's supreme goal is to show Himself. 
Not even to save sinners. His goal is to save sinners to the praise of His glorious grace, to show Himself. That's His his goal. And so when we join in that, we are doing what God is doing. This is to proclaim the ultimate truth. It's to make God known. God has promised and will fulfill His promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is interested in spreading the knowledge of who He is. Not just general truth, but ultimate truth. Who is God? Now, the declaration of the truth of the gospel is the supreme means by which this takes place. Paul joined in that as a preacher of the gospel. Now, in addition to that, we have to understand the importance of the church in that work. Because we've already seen the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. We want people to be saved. Why? So that more people will know who God is. So that God is made known. The job of the church is to uphold and support the truth. Not just 2 plus 2 is 4. I hope we learn that. But why? Because of who God is. Ultimate truth. The churches of Christ are called lampstands in Revelation 1 and 2. A lampstand to hold up the light. To fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. The reason churches exist is to proclaim truth. The reason Paul planted the gospel was to start churches. The reason Paul wrote back to these groups of people was to strengthen churches. Paul was in daily anxiety for the churches. Why? Because Paul knew that the church was the vehicle of the truth. The revelation of who God is in the world. Paul knew that the long-term method for advancing the truth of the gospel in the world would be churches. Not apostles, but churches. Now in the church, whose primary endeavor is the advancement of the truth, there are roles for everyone to play and a plethora of gifts given to the body of Christ, but they all serve this one battering ram. They all come in to enforce the tip of the battering ram, which is the truth proclaimed by the church's preachers. The preaching of the gospel was central to the mission of the church, which is why the church was central to Paul's ministry. Luke tells us in Acts 13.1 that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and two of them were sent out, Paul and Barnabas. And these men went out preaching the gospel, establishing churches. Then they went back around to strengthen these churches, appointing prophets in every church. No. Appointing elders, pastors, bishops, overseers, the preachers of the church. Now why? Ephesians 4.12 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, to carry the torch of the advancement of the truth, to move the truth along. And then Paul tells Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who can teach others also. Why? So that the truth can go into the next generation and into the next town and into the next state and into the next nation so that the truth of who God is will spread around the world. You see, God has chosen preaching as the method by which His church is to be established and built up in this world. And by that, the knowledge of His glory spreads throughout the earth. And God has ordained this means 
as we'll see, because this means glorifies God, not men. Some of you might already be comfortable at the emphasis on the preachers. That's because we've grown up in an, an egalitarian society where everybody does the same thing. But if you understood what Scripture teaches, you would understand to emphasize preachers is not to glory in men. It's the very opposite. It glorifies God, not men. So, we learn from this, and, and the way Paul went about his ministry, a lesson about preaching. Hopefully understanding the importance of truth and the means that ordained of God for the advance of the truth and the reason behind it, the glory of God, and we'll see more of this next week, the glory of God, it exposes us all to some of the ways we might be thinking about preaching. About preaching. Specifically, as Paul demonstrates here, preaching is not meant to be entertainment. It's not entertainment. If you think that preaching or an emphasis on the role of the preacher elevates men, it's because you're still thinking in terms of, of red carpet Hollywood. And the people on the red carpet, they get all the glory. The Bible says the complete opposite, as we're going to see in chapter 4. It's the opposite. This glorifies God, not men. But that's the way we often think. Our culture is inundated with this idea of, of celebrity. The preachers are the celebrities, the, the entertainers, the capturers of the hearts. I want to be up there so that I can have the praise of everybody down there. That's backwards. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. Preaching is not meant to be entertainment. Not for base minds who are seeking only amusement. It's not entertainment. It's not going to entertain that type of thinking. Nor is it entertainment for scholastic-minded people seeking a little intellectual stimulation. Stimulate my mind, and then I'll tell you whether or not it was a good sermon. It's not for that. Those seeking intellectual stimulation will either, one, find only simple truth that doesn't meet your criteria... You're going to say, well, that's, that's not very intriguing. It's pretty simple. Or you might take offense. Because biblical preaching doesn't offer you thoughts to consider and ponder. That's what the intellectual wants to do. Tell me what you believe. Let me go home and think about it. And I'll tell you whether it's true or not. But biblical preaching doesn't do that. It doesn't offer that. Biblical preaching declares objective, non-negotiable truth. Now, very often... The intellectual listens to preaching as judge, and they sit in, in determination about the validity of the truth. I'll decide if this is true or not. The mystic comes to preaching, but he comes also as judge to determine the validity of the truth based on the stirring of his or her emotions. Did I feel stirred? Well, it must not have been a great sermon. That's how they judge, but that is also a form of entertainment. And the person seeking amusement listens as judge based on whether or not they feel like they've had a good time. It's entertainment. That's the way our culture is shaped to think about preaching. But what Paul's saying, and what we need to understand is preaching is not entertainment for any, any group of people. Now, even as Christians in the church, we have people who view preaching like entertainment. You might have the, the masochist who just loves being hurt. Just give me something that just hurts me. Just cut me, cut me deep with some truth. 
expose my sin before the world. Now, I'm probably not going to go to God with that. I'm probably not going to repent. But boy, I felt bad when you were talking about it. And that must have been a good sermon. Well, that's just entertainment for that type of people. They, they, they determined, you captured me because you hurt me. But they didn't do anything about it. The other type of person we might, or category we might find ourselves in, I, I couldn't think of a better word. This is probably a bad term, but the retreatist type of mentality that loves to hear sermons that condemn all of the sins of everybody else, especially outside the walls of the church. They love that type of sermon. Condemn everybody else or even other churches and all the things that other churches are doing. Condemn that stuff. Oh, man, you really got him today, preacher. That was a good sermon. Well, you were just entertained because I wasn't talking about you. Or even in reform circles, we have the type of person who is only going to like a sermon if it's the same five points or even two points. Just talk about predestination and election every week, every week, over and over and over and over again. What well, was a good sermon? I just love that. Well, you know, there's there's more the to God, but that it can become entertainment, and whenever that falls to the wayside, well, I haven't heard anything about election in six months. Is he even a Calvinist anymore? Well. You, you're just looking for entertainment. You probably missed out on a lot of good. Yeah. Or you, there, there might be some who have charismatic tendencies. And so you're looking for some sort of absence of form or structure in, in the way things go that you can feel like the Spirit really moved. Like things were real confusing and it didn't, it didn't seem like you knew what was going on and, and we didn't even know when the sermon was finished. We just sort of got up and wandered away. Must have been the Holy Spirit. Nobody knew what was going on. We were all confused. That's obviously extreme, but people look for that. Entertain me with something. Again, we live in an entertainment-obsessed culture. And it's the same for every Christian subculture. We, most of us have grown up, at least spent the majority of our years, in a YouTube sermon audio world. And that's produced a generation of Christians who think of preaching in terms of search, point, click, download. Who do I want to listen to? I've got a whole list on the opening page of Sermon Audio. Uh, staff, staff picks. Don't know him, don't know him, don't know him, don't know him. Aha, know him. Download. Well, hold on a second. Is that a topic I want to hear about today? Keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Or what topic do I want to learn about? I'm not saying these things are necessarily bad, but this, is, this conditions the way we think about preaching. We want to be entertained. We'll even find our favorite preacher, listen five minutes into a sermon and say, eh, he just doesn't really have the ump that he had in the last sermon. So let's find somebody else. We move on. Because we think of preaching like it's entertainment. But preaching is not entertainment for any group of people. Preaching is the proclamation of the testimony of God. And it's not to be adulterated with any kind of entertainment or flair for any kind of person. As one has said, to dress up sermons to attract people is not love but prostitution. That goes for the people in the pews. That goes for the people in the congregation. To, to try For a preacher or a pastor to try to entertain the people in the pew, he's prostituting, he's adulterating the, 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 the Word of God and the God of the Word to try to get people to like him. That's not what preaching is. So what do you expect when you come here on the Lord's Day? Do you expect to be entertained? Do you expect to move up the ladder of enlightenment to go home and say, I've... I've, I've arrived. I understand it all. 
Or do you expect a few suggestions for your consideration? Well, listen, if, if what happens here is anything close to biblical, you're going to be disappointed week after week after week after week. You're not going to get it. It's not going to be entertaining. What should you expect? Again, you should expect the testimony of God to be proclaimed. You should expect the truth of who God is to be made known. You should expect that your mind will be pulled away from the world for a few minutes, not picked up and saturated back in the world, but pulled away. You should expect to have to put in a little mental and even physical effort as you listen. Some of you right now, you're thinking, I don't know how much longer my bottom can take it. I'm I'm too cold. I'm too hot. How long are we going to go about this? It takes a little effort. It takes work. It doesn't, it's not just entertainment. We, we don't have reclining chairs. Now, should you expect that your heart will burn within you like the travelers on the road to Emmaus? Well, it could happen. I don't see anything in Scripture that leads me to believe that would be normative, but it might happen. You should expect the truth. You should expect to hear about God and about your Savior. You should expect to hear about the cross and the atonement and the forgiveness of sins. Now, should you expect that there will be the conviction of sins? I think very often you're going to feel that. That's going to happen, I trust, if the Spirit should choose to do that. I can't convict you of any sins. Only the Spirit can do that. Should you expect to be glad and joyful in the Lord? Sure, I would say many times we should feel that way as the Word is being proclaimed. Should you expect to learn? Sure. I would assume all preaching includes the conveying of some doctrinal truth. I would just take a stab and say that, that maybe you, every once in a while you might learn a word means something you didn't know before. You're going to learn a little bit. You're going to use your mind. That's the opposite of amusement, by the way, to use your mind. Should you expect repetition? Yeah. Probably going to get a lot of repetition. Peter stirred up his audience by way of reminder. Paul said to write the same things is no trouble for me. There's going to be a lot of repetition because we all need to hear the same things. And there are those coming behind you that need to hear things that you didn't catch or that they didn't catch. The, 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 the 40th time you heard it might have been the second time they heard it and they need 38 more times. So there's going to be some repetition. Ultimately, Paul teaches us that preaching is not meant to be entertainment. The job of the church and of its preachers is not to appeal to the carnal appetites of the culture, even Christian culture. That's why I appreciate preachers who I can, I can send out, uh, you know, hey, listen to this. And somebody comes back and says, I just, I just can't get into it. And I'm like, praise the Lord. You need to just sit down and close your mouth and get into it for 45 minutes. That, that man might teach you something. It's a blessing. Why is this? Because the the chief goal of preaching is the glory of God. And as we're going to see, God uses people that are not very entertaining. Paul gets to this later on. I wasn't very entertaining. That's who God uses. Why? Because it magnifies God. It magnifies the fullness of who He is from His Word. It just takes the Word and opens it up. That's preaching. That's what we're after. And the fullness of who God is is going to bring joy to the saints, but also conviction of sin at times. In, in my preparation this week to consider deceiving the patience of God, I thought, boy, I'm such an impatient person. That's a conviction of sin. The fullness of who God is will bring comfort to the sorrowful at times, but it will very often bring sorrow to the comfortable when they realize that their comfort is sinful comfort. 
When, when God is made known, it does a lot of different things. What should we expect? That the testimony of God will be proclaimed. Seeing as the church is the house of God, we ought to be able to say, surely God is in this place. Not because we felt warm and fuzzy. Not because it stirred our emotions or what the old guys would call it, it moved our, the animal spirits in us. But because God made Himself known. We learned something of God. And we ought to be grateful that He would do that. That God would make Himself known to men through men. I, I want to say it like that. Men. God makes Himself known through men. Are you getting my facial expression? That's the point that Paul's kind of trying to make here. Paul preached. And as Paul preached, they believed and were baptized. And Paul says, and you remember, it wasn't that great. It wasn't very popular. But you believed. Well, let's pray that God would add His blessing to our time.